But first, would you pray with me? Almighty God, we come before you humbled. We are here for one reason alone, O oh God, and that is to worship you. To come into your presence with humility and graciousness so we might be filled to overflowing with renewal. So when we leave this place, we are different. Oh Lord, I ask that my words would be pleasing to you and that you might speak into each individual's heart a message that you would have for them uniquely. I ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. It's a greeting that's used in the synagogue on the Sabbath and it means a, a peace-filled Sabbath. A peace-filled Sabbath. Tonight, we are going to be having an interfaith service here at university. And so it seems appropriate to greet you with Shabbat Shalom. I'm going to tell you a story about Anjali. That's not her real name. But she was the first mother who ever moved into Magdalena House 12 years ago. And Anjali was born in the Bahamas. And her mother managed their extraordinary poverty by moving from man to man, while she and her sisters picked sugarcane. Her mother then would also do these little things to her. She would pour a, ba a big bag of salt over, over broken oyster shells outside, and when Angeli dis disappointed her, she would have to go kneel in those oyster shells as long as her mother wanted her. When she was six years old, her mother put her on a rubber raft and sent her into the Atlantic Ocean with a bunch of adults that she really didn't know. With this one instruction, she said, when you get to the coast of the United States, someone will call your aunt who's living there. Angelique grew up in Florida and married a Bahamian man. She, she became a citizen and, she, and, and shortly after that marriage, he began to abuse her. They landed in San Antonio at Fort Sam because he was in the army, but he was discharged soon after for domestic violence. Things got worse after that in their relationship. He didn't have a job. He was angrier and angrier. Then one day I received a call from a member of this congregation, actually. She's a teacher, and she happened to be this Angelie's oldest son's first-grade teacher, and so I interviewed her, and she was the first family that would move into Magdalena House. The day they were going to move in, I actually drove to her apartment to pick her up. Not a good idea. I realized this was a bad idea, and I don't do it anymore. But when I got there, the, 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 uh, the spouse was there. He's about six foot four. He, was, he sliced up all the furniture with a large knife and had their infant in his hands. And she was pleading for him to give the infant back to her. She got him back, and um, we got out of there quickly. She had brought with her from the Bahamas, and, and, and probably it had grown physical, emotional, and spiritual brokenness. It had followed her from the Bahamas and increased in the United States. We became very close over the next couple years. There were signs of healing in Angelie's life. Her self-confidence and trust began to grow. She was working with a counselor. She made us this crazy Haitian sauce that really would make the skin peel off your tongue. It was so hot. 
She followed all of our requirements. She went to school full-time. She had a counselor. She had a parenting coach, enrichment classes, and more. We provided with her, her with a family, uh, her family with a home, clothing, books, tuition, childcare, legal services for her divorce. We had family meals, birthday parties, holidays, field trips. We cried together. We laughed together. We lived life together. Her son arrived with her, her older son, and he was afraid of everything. He had nightmares and panic attacks. He was afraid of a spider if it was that big. He was terrified. He wouldn't leave the back porch of our five-acre property. He flunked first grade because he'd missed so much school from being kicked out of the house so often with his mother. But now he was excelling. He was everyone's favorite at the new elementary school, and he had discovered a love of reading. Then after about 18 months, Angelie began to struggle with her classes. At first, we didn't even know what was going on. We didn't know anything was wrong, and she got frustrated, and she even began to fail a couple classes. And I learned about that, and I believe she was just skipping class. She's just skipping class. She started to argue with residents. She seemed so defiant about everything. She started a fight with her best friend in the home. I was frustrated, and then suddenly, without warning, she told me that she and her sons were moving to Florida. She was leaving with college coursework and, and a, towards an associate degree, extensive counseling, theraplay, and parenting to, to renew this relationship of trust with her children. Her son had completed first and second grade on the A-B honor roll with perfect attendance both years. We had a big going away party to celebrate her, her, her departure and um, just to celebrate all she had done. And as she was literally leaving the property to get in the car to go to Florida, she gave me a letter. And, and I didn't read it right then, but I went in my office and read it later and it said that I had hurt her terribly. And that was why she was leaving. I was devastated. I was devastated and I was angry. And the worst thing is I had no idea. I had no idea what she was talking about. How, how could that be? Today marks the last in our series of When Helping Hurts. We're reflecting on how we can share God's love in a way that the outcome is what God wants. How are we compassionate to a hurting world without being in control of the situation all the time? For that, I'd like you to listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah found in chapter 58. Shout out, don't hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet announced to my people their rebellion, the house of Jacob, their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask me of righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. They say, why do we fast but you don't see? Why humble ourselves when you don't even notice us? Look, God says, you serve your own interests on your fast day and you oppress all your workers. 
Look you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? So first of all, we have a problem in Israel. And God says to the prophet, don't hold back. I need you to tell him what it is. And Isaiah gets straight to the point. Prophets are big picture people. The problem is this. There's a hypocritical gap between the intention of the community to worship and fast and how they live their life in community. There's a gap. This gap has to be overcome, the prophet will say, if there is to be communion with God through Sabbath or Shabbat and to have wholeness with God through shalom. For them, fasting had become self-promotion. It lacked self-denial. It lacked care for their neighbors, which in effect equates to rebellion against God, shares the prophet. God sees their fasting as fake, fake fasting. Their motivation was to gain advantage with God. They say one thing and they do another. That's an age-old practice. I've never done it. Say one thing, do another. Nothing very good happens when our words and our actions don't match. Trust is eroded. Feelings are hurt. Relationships fail. In general, everything around us can begin to fall asleep. I mean, fall, well, you might be falling asleep. Fall apart. It begins to fall apart. But the prophet says, wait, there's hope. There's hope for you yet. And the prophet continues, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then, then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. If fake worship or fake fasting is not what God is looking for, the answer, says Isaiah, is caring for your community and your neighbor. These verses give us a clear and radical statement of the social ethics that is at the heart of God's nature and is meant to be in the heart of God's family, God's people. This is a God who doesn't seek to be falsely flattered, but is a, a God who's out in the neighborhood. He's, he's knocking on doors. He wants God's people to do the same, to be caring for community. The fast that God wants is an end to injustice. It's not pious prayer to impress God. It's denying ourselves to create authentic Sabbath or Shabbat 
a Sabbath of peace and wholeness. Here it's specifically shared bread and shared houses and shared clothing, the elemental resources for life to exist. The prophet even refers to those who are in need as our family. The hungry and the, those who need clothing, the thirsty, they, they are our family, says the prophet. But then there's some really good news. If you live in this neighborly communal response, you will receive light, healing and protection, safety. The prophet is saying that communion with God is linked to neighborly care. Communion with God is linked to neighborly care. That's a really big statement. That's a really big statement theologically and practically. Jesus says no less in Matthew 5. He says, so when you bring your offering or your gift to the altar, that means when you're in worship and you're bringing your offering to the altar and you remember in the worship service that your brother or sister has something against you, you are to leave the gift. Leave the worship service and be reconciled to that brother or sister when you come to the altar with God. Communion with God is linked to neighborly care. If you remove the yoke from among you, the prophet says, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a, a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. Removing power and control over our neighbors. It might look like economic power. Removing accusations and slander, which make authentic community impossible. Offering food to the hungry, satisfying the needs of the afflicted with what they want. And not what you think they need. What they need, not what you think they need. Then your light rises. Here light refers probably to shalom. The concept of shalom. In other words, if you share with them wholeness, so they might be whole and empowered. Choices they make for themselves. You will receive the same wholeness, God says. I don't think there's any greater formula for joy. If we find ourselves surrounded by darkness, God has given us a prescription, and it is the way of compassion. It's a pathway to healing. If you find yourself on a dark day, think about what God might have you do to bring light into that day.
The words of parched places hearken for the Israelites, the Exodus, when God heard their cries in the desert, heard their cries oppressed under the Pharaoh and rescued them and liberated them. He gave them manna. He gave them safety and protection and was with them always. Energy, strength, and resources will rise up from genuine neighborly investment in the community, the prophet says. If you refrain, he goes on and finally says this, if you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways, serving your own interests or pursuing your own affairs, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of your ancestor Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Finally, this is a call to faithful Sabbath or Shabbat. Shabbat expresses the quintessential identity of the community of Israel and Christian community as well, I would say. The prophet declares that Sabbath is not about having things your way or pursuing your own affairs. Biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann comments that, listen to this, I, I love this quote, Sabbath is a cessation of feverish anxiety and control. I think he wrote that for me. Sabbath is a cessation of feverish, feverish anxiety and control. Because that is the antithesis of wholeness. Sabbath indeed provided rest for all members of the community as God rested on the seventh day. But in the Jewish community, it, it went from the head of the household to the worker, to the slave, to the woman, to the child, to the foreigner. All would rest in the abundance of creation a concept unbeknownst to all these other nations, they thought they were crazy. You let your workers rest? For us, we too can proclaim that we were once alienated and set apart from God. Choices that we made ourselves. And through Christ's life and teachings and sacrifice on the cross, we are invited to be whole and liberated ourselves. Brueggemann suggests these verses introduce a communal conditionality or neighborly indictment. Our neighbor is not a detraction to us. The hungry, the, the persecuted, the oppressed, you name it. That's our neighbor too, right? People that are different from us, they're not a detraction or an inconvenience, but they indeed, this is the currency through which community with God is offered. These relationships God calls us to form. In the series, When Helping Hurts, you've heard that poverty, whether it's material, emotional, or spiritual, is about broken relationships. It's a new way to think of poverty for probably North Americans, right? We think about material resources, but it's much larger than that. It's about broken relationships or alienation from one another. And when it comes to broken relationships, I heard Pastor Ben say with no uncertain words, there's no us and them, right? We are all broken. 
We all know brokenness. If poverty is a result of alienation, then the antidote for alienation is the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation. I have a caution for you on this work of reconciliation as you undertake it. I caution you this. To remember that our best intentions to reconcile a relationship may not have anything to do with the needs that we think that that individual needs. It may have nothing to do with the real needs they have. We have to listen in this process of reconciliation. If we don't, it is to that end that the author claims we can do real harm. Compassion fatigue is something that can happen to us all. It happens when we attempt to control situations that we seek to serve in. It can arise when we have expectations of people and they don't live up to those expectations. How dare they? Perhaps they aren't as grateful as we want them to be. And it bothers us. We might become cynical. We might become irritable, unsatisfied, tired, discouraged. This process of expecting someone to meet the expectations we set for them can create even greater brokenness for us and for them, the very ones we sought to serve. Alienation is increased where there should be empowerment. Oh, I had perfectly worthy intentions with Anjali. She was the first family. But I missed something. I missed something. She was struggling and I didn't even see it because I didn't ask. I saw only excuses she wasn't doing what I needed her to do. But more significantly, I had not noticed that I now related to her in a different way. But she had. A shift had occurred from compassion and kindness to frustration and impatience. She wasn't doing what she should be doing. My vision for her life had suddenly become oppressive for her. She correctly interpreted my actions because it was an emotion she knew all too well. She thought she had disappointed people her whole life. Why else would her mother treat her so and the man that would love her beat her so? All the hard work she had done, I was now pushing her towards the ledge nearly forfeiting all that she had accomplished. My intentions were now harmful. We provided resources for her family, no doubt, a safe home, a, a loving community, shelter, clothing, um, you know, funds that she needed. But my lack of relating honestly in an empowering way so she could make her own choices about her life and her children's life had the potential to undermine all the good that had been done. As an organization, this experience brought about a paradigm shift in our work. And I can say we approach it differently now. Every woman is unique with different needs and different journeys that they are on. 
After many calls to her and heart-to-heart conversations, Angelie forgave me. But she told me why she wrote the letter. She believed that I didn't care about her anymore. She believed something had changed and I was disappointed in her and I dismissed her because the way I interacted with her was different. At our 10-year reunion, we flew all the residents back that have moved away for a big retreat at one of our board members' lake house. It was glorious. She was there, and it was amazing. She was so grateful for things we had done. We had reconciled that brokenness, which was so harmful in the moment. But God is good, and God can heal. She has a job full-time. She supports herself. She has an apartment. She's, she's doing good. She's sassy as ever, spunky, still makes that hot sauce. Her son has done amazing. He's graduated from high school and now attends college. He's about six foot four, but he's a gentle giant. He didn't live in a home that continued to be violent. She's so proud of her children. This church has amazing resources, and they're all sitting in these pews. You're those amazing resources. You have gifts and graces to change a neighborhood, to extend neighborly concern and action. We have to remember and recognize that poverty is alienation, not simply a lack of stuff. Alienation most especially from God but from ourselves and from others. And Christ is the reconciler, restoring all of creation to the foot of the cross who calls us to co-labor with him through the power of the Holy Spirit, to offer our food to the hungry, satisfy the needs of the afflicted. For then our light shall rise in the darkness. The Lord will make our bones strong and we shall be like a watered garden. Ancient ruins shall be rebuilt We shall be with God's power, the restorer of streets to live in. Shabbat Shalom. Almighty God, we are so blessed to know you intimately. Speak to us, God. Oh God, where we are broken, we ask, oh God, for the mercy of healing. Where our neighbors are hurting and broken, we ask, O God, for the gift of listening. So that together we might empower one another to become that image that you created us each to be, male and female, in the image of God. Anoint us when we leave this place, O Lord, to do amazing work in our neighborhoods across the street and around the world. We give you thanks for this and all the blessings you bestow upon us as we are reminded during this Thanksgiving season. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.